Hello and welcome to episode 316 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Whoa. It's good to be back in person. It feels like it's been a very long time since we recorded in person, but I think it was maybe only one episode in between. It's the stone cold edition it, of the Pelton Cast. It definitely is, yes. The Steve Austin edition of the Pelton Cast. Well, let's get into it. Because uh, we got an exciting interview in the middle of this pod, <laughs> talking barbecue. Uh, so let's start with our beer this week, which is the uh, the Rubens Summer IPA. Hop forward with citrus fruit aromas, notes of orange and grapefruit with a medium light body and slightly bitter finish. Perfect for the long summer days where it rains a lot. It really is. I it I got this. Out of the bottle, I got this Ruben's fruit fizz hard seltzer because I was like, all right, I'll support a local hard seltzer. Yeah. And the flavors that they have are lemon, lime, grapefruit, and orange. Oh, okay. Well, let me tell you, I those those flavors are up my alley in terms of seltzer flavors. It's good. It's it's similar to San Juan seltzer. It's like a very mild flavor. It's not mm-hmm. like I I was I'm worried every time I get a new seltzer that it's going to be overly sugary. Because most of the big corporate seltzers are all just like fuck straight fucking sugar. Wow. But so you're saying that a local seltzer might be better than insert corporation corporate brand here in seltzer? It definitely is. What it's are the competitive odds? with San Juan seltzers? I don't know if that's always the case. With seltzers? Which is the category where, like, let's just extend our brand into this thing that's kind of tangentially related to it because they're both alcoholic carbonated <laughs> products. That but works. it's like not like Rubens is like I saw that Rubens was True. doing seltzer, and I was just like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> <laughs> I definitely I was like I recognize this logo and it says Rubens, but are 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 we sure that this is the same Rubens? <laughs> what well, definitely is definitely is the same Rubens. No one else would have that uh, cursive R logo. Also, how dare you talk bad about Rainier Seltzer that way? <laughs> oh, no. That's a local, I find that's local, a local, local seltzer. seltzer. <laughs> Did we ever have Rainier Seltzer? I th- I've definitely had it. It is not good. I don't think I've had it. We also it never had the Rainier Gin. I don't think I've ever had the Rainier Gin. The Rainier the Seltzer definitely falls under the tangentially related to what you do. <laughs> Corporation decided to make it. I mean, is your point out? Yes, it's tangentially related for Rubens as well, but I'm assuming some care went into that one. Uh, our toast this week start with Julio Rodriguez being named AL Rookie of the Month Hello. for May, joining Ichiro four times. Rafael you should have had me guess these. Oh, I should have had you guess these. Because yes, there is one that I was never. Well, I mean, I probably would have gotten. Three? I, yeah, you might have gotten Nitro. I don't know if you would have gotten any of the uh, others. Michael Pineda and Mike Carp, the other Mariners. Mike Carp. To win this award since it was first given out in 2001. I'm surprised Bucky Jacobson wasn't in here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he was. I think he was more of a local cult hero as opposed to the national. But Celtic. Mike Carp was that good to get. I don't know. I mean, it's also interesting. Ichiro won it only four times. He was MVP of the league, and someone <laughs> else was a better rookie in the AL. Two I think months? they probably wanted to spread it around in two thousand one. Like Mike Carp has twenty seven career home runs. How terrible were the rookies? I guess this one season that he had in two thousand eleven wasn't bad. I mean, that's baseball for you. Uh, 
Julio had a 309, 339, 527 slash line in the month of May. His seventh home run on Monday night going opposite field in Houston, now up to a 273 average, 756 ops for the season. I think they call it OPS. I think it could be pronounced either way. Okay, well, don't tell Baby Fantasy Genius that, because <laughs> he will correct you. <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound like a member of the Carcino family at all. <laughs> More to come on him later. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, happy retirement to longtime UW baseball coach Lindsey Meggs, who concluded a 29-year career as a college hedge coach with 932 wins, including 317 of them at UW since taking over the program in 2010, led the Huskies to the first trip to the College World Series in the program history in 2018, which is the only time we talked about college baseball <laughs> on this podcast. A legend, Lindsey Meggs. A fixture of UW baseball for that one time we talked about UW we'll baseball. We'll have those two weeks in 2018 where we cared about UW baseball. Uh, also a happy retirement to Fitzmagic, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, who started four games in his career against the Seahawks, fittingly with four different opponents. His team's losing all four, but he did throw for 315 yards and 45 attempts in his most recent, the most recent meeting against the Seahawks, a 31-23 Seahawks win in Miami. In October 2020. We never really faced like a great Fitzmagic team. No, definitely not. I mean, the Buffalo team that they played in Toronto, Russ's rookie year, was not a great Bills team and was an all-time juggernaut of a Seahawks team at that point. I mean, that, that win against Miami, I think that was one of those games where it turned out, at the time, we weren't sure if it was a good win, but then the Dolphins actually ended up being very good that year. Yeah. And we looked back on that, and we were like, oh, that actually was a very good win that the Seahawks had on the road in Miami. And whichever the other NFC West team played in Miami was, they got smoked, I think, right? I think it was the Rams. I, I feel like I think the it Rams was the Rams. The Rams definitely lost to Miami that year. But then we actually looked it up, and it was the 49ers, or vice versa. I don't know. Was one of those two teams for sure. Have we talked about this that many times? It, I don't know what the context was where it came up, but it's <laughs> definitely come up before. Uh, I mean, Fitzmagic, just an all-time great, fun quarterback in the NFL. Just a great red zone quarterback. Like, you know something exciting is going to happen when Fitzmagic comes on your screen on red zone. It might be good, might be bad. You never know, but it's going to be something exciting. They beat three of four NFC West opponents that year. Wow, so the Seahawks were the only win against the Dolphins. When they were one and three after they lost to the Seahawks and then finished the season 10 and six, missed the playoffs, but finished the season 10 and six after that. I mean, like literally the week after they beat the Niners on the road. And then two weeks after that, they beat the Rams. Okay. And the Cardinals the week after that. So they played the NFC West four to five weeks and beat every other opponent except for the Seahawks. So we'll always have that one amazing victory against Fitzmagic. (laughs) What a time. Yeah. What a time. (laughs) Quarterback Russell Wilson. Nothing bad will ever happen to him in Seattle. Oh, dear. (laughs) The season will never, we'll never look back on this season is cursed. That's Pelton Cast Hall of Famer. Russell Wilson, we announced last week, of course, that him and Bobby Wagner are direct-elect inductees into the Peltoncast Hall of Fame, and now it's time to lay out the fan-voted, listener-voted nominees. Uh, You will select one of these from the sports category, one of these from the non-sports category to join the illustrious legends in the Peltoncast Hall of Fame. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got to, you know, we got to save some of these for future years. We don't want to burn through... Pelton cast Hall of Famers too quickly. 
Okay. I mean, we're I, imagining this continuing. Let's for go, let's go through them sports wise, and you you make a just a very brief the case for. All right, so the first nominee for the first time on the ballot is Richie Everall. Yes, uh, my all-time favorite Mariners player, uh, and we've discussed on the Pelton Cast, especially during Let's Remember some years. I think there was a lot of Richie Everall talk. Oh, I mean, at, at the time, maybe he still has the record for most hits in a single game for the Mariners. Is that true? Five hits in a game. I he had it, held it five, for a long he time. Had a five K game. I I don't know if that's still the record. I mean, just freaking destroyed the PCL. <laughs> right, the Pacific Coast League. I did find uh, when when uh, we were cl- mom was cleaning out uh, her basement, uh, my old room. There was like a Mariners magazine from 1993 that had the story of Rich Amaral's journey through the minor leagues to join the Mariners. The pride of Visalia, California, correct? Indeed, yeah. There we go. All right, up next we have Jamal Crawford, also first time nominee. I mean, really needs no introduction. The godfather of Seattle basketball, a third Pelton brother, someone who has appeared on this podcast, the only one of our nominees who could who could say that. Uh, you know, in an incredible NBA career, three-time six-man award winner. I probably should have looked this up before we uh, did the podcast, but one of the great all-time players from Seattle and a terrific ambassador for Seattle basketball. One of the greatest heat-check players, basically, in the history of the NBA. Right. For sure. Coming off and the bench. Holds the all-time record for most points scored in his final. Oh, no, I guess that's right because he played for Brooklyn. Oh, no, he ruined that. Because when he played for Phoenix his last game, he had like 47 in the final game. Or maybe he got to 50. What about Kobe? Oh, uh, you're right. He may be second to Kobe. He would have been <laughs> second to Kobe. Didn't Kobe put up 60 in his he final game? He did put up 60, didn't he? I was like, there's no way. But then I think Jamal played literally one game for Brooklyn in the bubble. Ruined it. Yeah. That's all right. All right. Our last, it's good for Kobe. Our third now. nominee. Uh, returning to the ballot from last season, Jermaine Curse. I mean, possibly the athlete most closely linked with the original incarnation of the Pelton cast. Uh, someone who played high school here at Lakes High School, went to UW, grinded his way as an undrafted player onto the Seahawks, became a starting receiver, a key member, scores the winning touchdown in both the 2000. 13 in 2014 NFC Championship games, the latter, the walk-off touchdown in overtime, uh, scores a touchdown in Super Bowl 48, makes an iconic catch in Super Bowl 49 before that game was inexplicably canceled with mm-hmm. seconds remaining. Uh, just an incredible career for Jermaine Curse. And our last sports nominee, Here we go. again returning to the ballot, uh, has not appeared on the Pelton Cast, but we have had a special episode about it, and that's the Kingdom. Has not appeared on the Pelton Cast. <laughs> Would love to integrate some concrete <laughs> from the Kingdom. Uh, Seattle's Seattle's original Dome Stadium, home home of at one point the Mariners, Sonics, Seahawks, and Sounders, all at the same time. In the late seventies and early eighties. Can you imagine the emergency pod we would have had when the tiles fell? Uh, that was. That was a moment. I, I definitely remember. We were supposed to go to the Mariners game the night, the night or the next night, I think. Really? If I remember. And then like found out probably on KJR that the game was canceled. <laughs> All right. In the non-sports category, first time ballot on the ballot, Capitol Hill block party. 
I mean, returning after two years, it's been two full years since we've had Capital Block Party, a fixture of summer in Seattle, and also, you know, a festival that's been going on for 20 plus years in the heart of the city, in the middle of July, there's no better weekend, some of my best memories ever, and also, if you look at it, both locally and nationally, almost every important act that there has existed over these last 20 years has played Capital Block Party at some point. Uh, definitely a barometer of constantly where music is going and where culture is shifting and constantly evolving and having like new young people be part of it. I think Block Party is it's the best weekend of the summer. And also discussed on the pod, your escapades at the Block Party with Third Belt and Brother Reese, along with some previews we've done in the past. May have to bring that one back with the Block Party returning. All right, next up, another first-time nominee. This will not be the last time that this place is mentioned on this podcast. Hello. This is going to come up during our interview, and that's Ivers. I, I'm shocked we haven't talked more about Ivers. I mean, you, you really look at the Pacific Northwest, and you look at the like fast, casual chains, and it is Dick's, it is Taco Time Northwest, and it's Ivers. Boom, boom, boom. All three of them, phenomenal. Phenomenal organizations, uh, phenomenal food, and the Ivers, you know, you look at it all the different points of Seattle where it exists, right? It's on the waterfront. It's up north. It's at Kulon. Any place that there's water, there is Ivers, and there's phenomenal fish and chips. North Lake, and you also have, like, the different, you have the the seafood bars and then the full-on sit-down restaurants. Ivers encompasses a, a lot of things. I, I think maybe we, we don't talk about it that much because, I mean, it's fish and chips. It's not like burgers or something. But like, and also the menu is nowhere near as varied as taco time, right? It's just like you're getting fish and chips and you're getting clam chowder. I, don't, I mean, are there Ivers hacks? I don't know. This, I, I, don't that, I would is. love to hear from people who are just like really stand something else on the Ivers menu. <laughs> I mean, we we mixed it up a little more when we used to go there for happy hour all the time. That was that, that was, was different. Fun. That was a different experience for sure. That like uh, wasn't Ivers. It's still Ivers though. Uh, I I was gonna note that uh, Baby Fantasy Genius for his birthday last month. Oh, it's like his number requested one Ivers. That was the first time I'd had it in a long period of time, and it was great. Of course, we had it on Friday. It was incredible. I enjoyed every second of it. All right, returning to the ballot for his second consecutive year. Seafair. If Capitol Hill Block Party isn't the highlight of Seattle summer, then Seafair <laughs> surely is. And obviously something we discuss a lot on this podcast because of the hydroplane races, our memories of attending them since we were very small children uh, up to, I would say, the present day. But uh, Lake Block Party has also not taken place the coming, last two years. Coming back and this year? It is back, yes. With the boats? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Hello. Yeah. You must be very excited. I am. <laughs> I'm a little concerned that uh, we have a trip scheduled that conflicts, conflicts with uh, the Tri-Cities Water Follies. Oh, no. Also a bummer because some great barbecue in, in Richland. You you skeptical of that? I don't know. I don't know what I you know really about think barbecue. You all your barbecue I really, thoughts? I really... I, I think that one probably holds up. I'm, I'm confident on that one. All right, our last non-sports nominee, Sir Mix-A-Lot, returning to the ballot. I mean... The first great Seattle hip-hop artist, uh, person who put alongside grunge, right? Like in such a time period that grunge was happening in Seattle, to have somebody like Sir Mix-a-Lot reach international fame and a song that is maybe even more lasting than any song that came out of grunge, right? Sir Mix-a-Lot both represented Seattle 
on a very specific basis, right? You have Posse on Broadway, right? You put that up against Smells Like Teen Spirit 10 out of 10 times, right? You know what you're picking. And then on the other end of the uh, other end of the spectrum, there's Baby Got Back, right? He reached international fame. Uh, and say what you will about the song, it is a lasting song that will exist for eternity. They will make museums with Baby Got Back in it. It'll be in the fucking presidential archives, right? Put it that, in the loop. That song. So I, Sir Mix a Lot is somebody who. He's Seattle through and through. And then as you dig deeper, as you get to understand Sir Mix-a-Lot more, you can really recognize that there's great tracks all throughout the Sir Mix-a-Lot catalog. It's not just these couple of tracks. But also the iconic combinations with the Sonics, making not one, but two Sonic anthems. No, not in our house. Plus, we the, who's the Kings of the West Side, which he said uh, he was, I referenced this previously, he was on the uh, iconic Sonics podcast, he said he liked Who's the Kings of the West Side much better, that he wasn't as involved. With, like, he had more limits on what he was allowed to deal with, not in our house. All right. But, I mean, not in our house, still probably the special place. Are those available? House. Did we find those when we talked about it before, when we remembered some years? They're out there. Okay. Yeah. And they're, they're definitely on YouTube. So, again, we'll have those polls. This week, we're going to run the sports poll. Week after, we'll run the non-sports poll. Uh, vote early. Probably don't vote often because that's not how Twitter polls work, except for me with my multiple different accounts that I can vote for. But uh, uh, looking forward to the feedback from you, the listener, on some of these new nominees. With that in the books, I think it's time to get an expert to help us talk barbecue. Well, to help guide us in our search for Seattle's best barbecue, Third Golden Brothers, Zach Jabal, has been kind of us enough to uh, hook us up with an expert and uh, also his cousin, the co-author with Aaron Franklin of the New York Times bestseller, Franklin Barbecue, a meat smoking manifesto, as well as Franklin Steak and co-author of Knife with Top Chef Seattle contestant John Tizar, among many other books. Please welcome to the pod, Jordan McKay. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So how did you get into this world of barbecue specifically and writing about that? Yeah, it was, it was a little, it was a little weird um, or un, unexpected. I was originally really into wine um, and I was sort of, I had a, I was living in San Francisco. I had a career as a wine writer and then I got sort of just, I hit a, hit a roadblock in that, just a mental, mental block. And I just, needed something else. And I had grown up in Austin after growing up originally in Seattle and, uh, and barbecue, this was sort of like the mid two thousands and, um, and barbecue had really just started taking off as a thing as people were sort of discovering this heritage food. And, you know, there was really in a, in a place in a country without a lot of necessarily indigenous foods, barbecue is one of them. And so when I'd go back to Austin to visit friends and my mom, I would go, um, visit the local places, you know, and, um, and so I got interested in that. And then I proposed, I wrote one article for this kind of very high end, uh, food quarterly called the art of eating. And I wrote this gigantic long article on central Texas barbecue, 7,000 words or something like that. And, um, and I think it was probably the longest article about barbecue ever written at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, um, the, the new hot young, guy on uh, in Austin and in national barbecue because if if you uh, follow anything about barbecue you've heard of Franklin before famous for the lines outside and all that 
Well, I guess he and his agent had seen uh, seen my article and he liked the very geeky way that I approach barbecue because that was the kind of the same approach that you have to wine, you know, like understanding why everything happens the way it does. And so anyway, uh, so they just signed me on to write this book. And at the time, we had no idea that it was going to be as big as it was. And uh, and in fact, um, you know, now it's led, it led to our second book, which is about steak and our third, which is I'm actually just flying to Austin tomorrow to do photography on. So that'll be a third book on smoking and stuff like that. So anyway, but I will say that like my my supposed expertise really came uh, very much on the job. Like um, I, I do like to tell the story that when I first uh, when I first like agreed to do the book, sign the contract, flew to Austin. It was the middle of winter. It was like Jan late January. And I called up Aaron Franklin and I was like, OK, I'm in town. You know, I guess we should get started. I should come and learn how to you know, learn what's going on there. And I said he said, that sounds great. Uh, why don't you show up tomorrow at one? And I was like, perfect. Um, should we eat? Should we plan to have lunch, you know, or should I eat before I come? And he's like, no, that's 1 a.m., you know, and um, and that's when he was working the rib shift at his restaurant. And I got there and literally he's like the only guy at this restaurant. He's got like six giant smokers going and he's had so much to do. And between the hours of one and like 11 when they open that he's literally sprinting around his restaurant and his lot to like get everything done. And I'm just racing around with my little microphone and my notebook, ask, trying to ask him questions. And so that's how I learned, but it was weeks and weeks of doing that. And then now it's become years and, you know, and several books and we become great friends. So that's the long story. So you're saying your learning process was low and slow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was low and slow. <laughs> uh, were, were, like, did you have expertise in cooking? Had you cooked barbecue at mm. all previously? Like, what was what was your level of awareness before you mm. got into this? No, no, it was probably like I'd never, you know, I'd never cooked barbecue, and and that's a good place to say that. Like, also when we talk about barbecue in Texas, anyway, and in the South in general, we're talking about like smoking foods, like long smoked foods not the way most of the rest of the world uses it, which could be anything like grilled over charcoal. You know, we're talking about a long process that really transforms food through, uh, through smoke. So, um, so no, I had had no experience doing that. N now I do. Now I love to smoke things um, and uh, meats and, <laughs> um, and, uh, but it, no, at the time I, I was just an avid home cook. I loved cooking and I still do. Yeah. So what did you sort of learn in this process of following Aaron and how does that then kind of inform, obviously you mentioned now starting to smoke yourself, but when you, when you eat barbecue, what are you right. looking for? Okay. So, so, you know, first I'll say that like, you know, that really great, great barbecue is a total commitment. Like you have to like give your life to it basically, because uh, especially a piece like a brisket which can take 12 to 14 hours to cook. And in fact, you know, for, for uh, photography on the new book where I'm going in there and we're already talking about like, okay, this day we have to get up at 3 a.m. to get the fires going. And if you wanna eat, if you wanna have it ready by 6 p.m. or something like that, you know? So, uh, so and, and, you know, 
and this is really doing it the classic way. I'm not sure in Seattle whether it's going to be, um, you know, you know that that's like having an open fire all the time, and places have smoke laws now, and so there are shorter ways. But but you know what I so but when I look for like the real commitment, like you can tell kind of when people have cut corners, you know. And so depending on, and we can talk about individual cuts that you'll probably encounter, you know, and we probably should do that. Um, you know, I'm looking for, you know, a certain flavor, texture, all of that, whether it's, you know, and it's different for ribs and um, brisket or sausage, you know, these are like the classics um, or pulled pork. And, you know, and also, and I'm much less concerned with sauce. Sauce is, um, it's tasty and we like it and, and I will judge it if it's there, you know, but, um, but I, I really am looking at the integrity of the meats first and foremost. What, what is, can you describe the back of Franklin barbecue to us? Like, is there a big barbecue pit or what, what does it look like when you walk in there? Yeah. So, um, so when I, when we first started, when we started with the first book and it had only been open a few years, um, it had all the, so he makes, he makes his own smokers out of uh, decommissioned propane tanks, like thousand gallon, very long propane tanks. And he'll like cut the end off and attach, weld on another, like a smaller propane tank as a firebox. And so they use these offset smokers where you build the fire in one, in one part, and then the smoke goes through and comes out a smokestack and all the meats are in the smoke chamber, but they don't have direct access to the heat. You know, it's just that, um, or to the fire heat and smoke are passing through there constantly. And part of the, what makes his stuff great is that you're, he's burning a lot of wood, creating a really nice fire and, uh, and keeping the temperatures even. And then you've got this convection and fresh smoke going through all the time. And in fact, like a lot of the art of, of that kind of barbecue is fire management. It's tending your fire, understanding your wood, all of that. Um, so now in, in the years since he has actually built on a smoke house. So he's like, and uh, because of the size of their lot in Austin, it's like on, it's this two-story building and it's kind of crazy. He has all these smokers now on the second floor of this, of this thing. And that was to be able to control temperature and also just for the, um, you know, workflow of the restaurant. It was hard having people run out into a dirt lot all the time, you know, and so now it's like indoors. It burned down once, uh, improbably during a hurricane, um, and uh, but then they rebuilt it, and so now it's all in. A, it's in a big room attached to the restaurant. All right, let's go through. You mentioned the different cuts of meat, and you know the different things you're looking for in each of those. So, I mean, obviously, let's start with brisket, since that's kind of the yeah. certainly in Central Texas, the king. Yeah, and I would hope that there are some people doing great brisket. So, um, so as you know, brisket is the uh, it's like the chest muscle, the pectoral of the of the cow, and so it is uh, it's a weight bearing muscle, being right on the chest, uh, you know, above the the front legs, and so um, so it's a very tough muscle. It has to do a lot of work, and that means that it's uh, unlike say a steak or whatever, it has to be cooked low and slow to, uh, or medium and slow, I would say, to break down all of that muscle fiber and, and turn it into collagen and gelatin, which it is. So, so one thing you're looking for is in the texture, you're looking for, um, it shouldn't be dried out. If it's properly rendered all the fat and if all the connective tissue has been sort of uh, 
rendered down, then it's going to be really tender and moist. Shouldn't be so tender that you can't cut it that we don't want like a kind of a pot roast texture where it just falls apart into flakes. You know, you should still be able to slice it. There's, you know, the most famous end, there's two parts of the brisket. There's the, the flat end, which is kind of what you're used to seeing. And then there's another end called the point. Um, and so the flat end should slice, you know, uh, nice and thin. But like I said, it still has to be moist. One of the most important parts of the brisket, um, and this is actually true of, of any of these cuts, um, is what we call the bark. And the bark is that outside crust area, basically, that gets, uh, that absorbs most of the smoke. It's also on the brisket, that's where um, you've like rubbed it with either salt, pepper, and whatever spice rub. And basically over hours and hours and hours of smoking, it the fat layer and the pepper merge into one beautiful, delicious, savory, smoky, layer called the bark. And so that should be, it shouldn't, it should be black basically, but not taste charred, not taste burnt, but just taste delicious. And it should have a little bit of resistance, but not too much. So you want to see a nice intact bark outside of the, um, outside of the meat, you know, and I think those are kind of the two most important things. And other, let me just also say is sort of umbrella, you know, we talk a lot about what is, um, good smoke and bad smoke. And until you're like, until you really think about it, because smoke itself is such a distinctive and powerful flavor and aroma, you maybe have never thought to really judge like, okay, what's the quality of this smoke? But I will say that um, once you become aware of it, it's pretty easy to say. And smoke from a choked off fire where you're not getting enough combustion, whether it's kind of just smoldering, can be very acrid. It can leave a bitter taste in your mouth. And not only that, it can leave a very long lingering bitter taste in your mouth. And uh, I've had it many, many times. And now it's like, it's quite foul to me. Good smoke should have that kind of peppery, uh, smoky sweetness, complexity, but, uh, but never like acrid and bitter. Um, so, so that's one thing I think no matter what, it, what the meat you're having, you know, in this tour, uh, you should, um, you should always kind of look for really good tasting sweet smoke. You, uh, one of the things we've discussed is that brisket, it feels like has kind of the, it's got an extremely high ceiling as a food, but a really low floor because bad brisket is really bad. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of it is that really, once it gets really dried out, you know, and, and this is the other thing, like one thing that makes Franklin really great is that he shells out for the very best quality prime grade briskets that he can buy on the market. And a lot of people don't want to spend that much money on their meat. And so they'll get lower grade stuff that has less marbling, you know, which is intramuscular fat. And that's, you kind of need some of that to render out. So it's very easy to get dry, dried out, tough meat if you start out with sort of bad product. So that's another thing that I would use to say, like if I was comparing briskets in different places, I would say, okay, you know, can you tell what is the quality of the raw ingredients that they're starting out with? I and mean, we've probably had a lot more brisket, I would say, at least to, to kind of judge and evaluate at a high end than ribs. So I'm, I'm very curious what you're looking for with ribs. Yeah. So ribs, you know, um, and, and we, 
we should talk about like there's sort of various styles and things like that but you know ribs uh when we're talking about let's we're talking about pork ribs say because beef ribs are still kind of a texas thing right but they're not that common to find although they're delicious when you do find them so keep your eyes open for for beef ribs those are pretty special um also take about eight nine hours to cook a single beef rib but um pork ribs so you know there's two kinds there's uh baby back ribs which are very common and pork spare ribs which are meatier longer and uh and i prefer i prefer spare ribs to uh to baby back ribs you know um but you know, once again, you're looking for a bark. Now it's not going to be the same kind of bark as you'd find on brisket because it's, uh, they don't have as much of the layer of fat on top that, that forms it. But, you know, one thing that I, I really look for in ribs is you want it tender. You want it to be able to pull off the bone. Um, and, and so texture is supremely important. You should pull off the bone, but it should. And so in such that it should leave the bone dry. Like you should be able to pull it completely off the bone. However, you also want it to have a little bit of resistance that to your teeth, that little bit of bite, that little bit of tug that is, a, that's a perfectly cooked brisket, uh, perfectly cooked rib. If you get it, you can, you feel a little resistance, a little snap, which is delicious and, uh, and feels good. And then can pull it off and have a perfectly dry bone. Then, you know, you're in the presence of a master rib cook um and then and sorry and then flavors you know flavors again uh you should uh, on all of these things whether it's brisket ribs chicken you know you should be able to taste the quality of the smoke like we talked about but i also like to be able to taste the um the intent the the meat as well you know you should really be able to taste both things simultaneously it should the ribs should taste of that good smoke but they should also still taste of that delicious meaty rib flavor how about sausage? Okay. Sausage is, um, you know, there's so many different kinds of sausage. I, I love sausage. And I think, you know, especially if you can find places that make their own sausage, it's pretty, pretty cool because not only is there an art to that, but there is, it's, it makes great sense for any restaurant to do it because you basically use your trimmings from the meats that you you're serving to, uh, to create your sausage. So it's very efficient. And I like to see places that are well run like that, you know? Um, so with sausage, again, it's a little bit up to your own flavor, what you like, you know, you might find stuff that's spicy or some, you know, Texas, it's common. You see places that put cheese in the middle, which is also like delicious. If it's cooked, right. You know, you get this runny cheese inside. Um, the thing that I really care the most about is that snap that when, you know, when it's been smoked really well and the, the casing has tightened up and it's just at that right level and then you cut into it and you can, or bite into it and you get that, that snap of breaking through the casing. And I think that's really one great indication of good, good sausage. And then lastly, pulled pork, obviously not a, a Texas staple specifically, no. but elsewhere. Yeah. So you know, pulled pork is, um, are you guys fans of pulled pork? Yeah. 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 I am too. So, so I think like pork is really, it can kind of be a challenge compared to sort of the beef that Texas is known for pork, I think just doesn't have as strong and native flavor. You know what I mean? And so I think that one, again, you need that really good 
you, you need really good pork flavor. So I like to see a good quality pork that goes into it um, because otherwise it can just sort of be devoid of flavor. So, so the smoke is good, but I like to get a really nice kind of porkiness. And, and then I think with pulled pork, it's a texture too. I like to get, um, you know, it's been pulled apart. And so you can get some that's really soggy and, and dense. I love it when there's kind of cracklings and some crust that's been mixed in so that your texture is more diverse than just kind of this soggy, heavy, sloppy Joe like meat, you know? Um, and then, and then I think, you know, with pulled pork, uh, sauces come into play a lot again, because it's not quite as, um, as intensely flavored as beef. So then, you know, you want to see whether, whether you like, uh, you know, a, a vinegary sauce or a, like a mustard based sauce or a sweeter sauce, you know? And so I think, you know, for you guys, you'll really have to, you, you should probably like, you know, as, as you go through and taste this stuff together, kind of establish what you both like. And so you can talk about it because everyone's going to have their own style. And I think, you know, you, uh, it, it's too, it's hard to judge someone, one person by someone else's style. So you have to kind of try to understand what they're doing, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big part of the learning process uh, as part of this. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, you mentioned barbecue becoming so much bigger of a thing in the 2000s. It's kind of fascinating. It feels like there was a a craft element to the industry that Aaron Franklin in particular, and then kind of some of the people that have come along after him have brought to it. Is that a, a fair way to put it? Did you say crack? Craft. Oh, crap. <laughs> like, like craft brewing. Oh um, yeah. So, you know, and, and again, that's, that, that's why I do think it's, it's like, it, it would be interesting for y'all when you go, when you do this to like, not just, I, not just, uh, only, you know, taste the thing, but, but to see how they're doing it and to learn a little bit about what they're doing, because they're, they're very much as a craft thing and, and great, the greatest barbecue kind of, as I, as I alluded to earlier is a, is a food of effort. And, you know, it's really easy to cut corners. You know, you can, you can do it in rotisserie ovens, which, you know, make a lot of sense, but they can, they can create a lot of, they can create smoke with just a lot less wood. And you're probably going to find stuff like this in Seattle, because again, a place with, uh, with a serious environmental bent, you know, and, um, and so there are probably regulations about how much smoke you can emit into the atmosphere. I don't know, but, but still the best, the best places won't cut corners, you know? And so, um, yeah, one thing like even compared to the old school places, which are really cool to visit in Texas, where, you know, built hundred year old buildings where they still have open fires. And yet kind of what Aaron Franklin taught the world was that their barbecue as neat as it, as it is, was not the best. They sort of, they sort of pushed it at higher temperatures. They cooked it too fast and, and it still is that way. And you, you taste that compared to Franklin and you'll be, it's like night and day that the, the craft of what he did from making his own smokers, you know, and refining the designs to get the um, action that he wants for, and then the time that he spends doing it, the quality of the meat, um, all of that is very, very much a craft. And, and it's, um, you know, and it's cool though, that so many people around the country now have dedicated themselves to this craft because it's like it like I said it's a 
real commitment of your life and your time. And so I think all around the country, there are people, you know, doing really serious jobs of it. And I'm sure up there in Washington, too. Yeah. How much exploring have you done outside of Texas of barbecue? Because I think that's one of the things we're struggling with is that, you know, Seattle, Washington doesn't have this long history of barbecue in the same way that, you know, Kansas City or Carolina or Texas has. And for us, it's kind of like whatever it's going to be, it's almost like a recreation or a bastardization of those things. You know, we did a search for Seattle style teriyaki and it's like, that's so in the bones of Seattle, right? Like what we, we do this, we own this, we know what this looks like. But I think for barbecue, it's something where it's kind of taking somebody else's culture and transferring it to this city. And I'm curious, how much exploring have you done in other cities? Maybe even a place that is not, you said you lived in San Francisco, right? Mm -hmm. A place like that, that is probably in a more similar position to Seattle of the barbecue scene there. Right. Um, That's a great question. Um, So I have not done as much exploring as I probably should have um, (laughs) because uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, One, unfortunately, I started at the very top of the heap. And um, and like even when I would try to go visit barbecue restaurants around California, I just found them all so lacking compared to um, compared to what I would get at Franklin that it was. So I became like it's like having it's like having that incredible the, the, the world's best wine, like in your first in your first wine experience and then everything else you taste is crap. So um, so that's like so I I actually don't try as much as I as I should because I just kind of can see that it's not going to be great. I've, I've gone through South Carolina a little bit in North Carolina and tried stuff. And I do find that very interesting over there because that's not, um, you know, there's not a lot of crossover with Texas. I've never done the famous Kansas city uh, style barbecue, which um, doesn't sound as appealing to me anyway. They have a very, they, they like a very sweet, heavy, rich sauce. And I'm sort of like a more savory savory sauce guy. And then, um, but there are a couple of like really emerging places in the Bay area where the guys are doing very serious work. Really? Um, and, and I know some of them, a, a, a lot of people that you talk to have actually all, they've all read the book that, uh, I co-wrote yeah. with Aaron and what he, in a lot of ways, or we, I should say, but mostly him sparked a lot of this barbecue revolution because he basically taught everyone how to do this brisket this way, you know, that, that became a big, big thing. There was a lot that people couldn't quite figure out because there's especially a couple of twists and turns that happen over the course of those 12 hours that you're cooking it where, um, where like, if you don't kind of follow the path or you don't know the path, you can easily go astray and it will suck. And so he basically in that book, um, laid out the real strategy, but, um, but I, I will say that like, you know, I also, you know, when I just, when you like really good barbecue is so rich and so filling, I'll be interested to see how I'll be following you guys, how you, uh, how this goes for you, because especially as I've gotten a little older, my ability to consume barbecue has yeah, kind yeah. of declined. And so I go, like, I go back to Austin a couple of times a year, probably, and I get to have some Franklin when I'm there. And then from when I'm away, I just don't have as much of an appetite for it, you know? 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think it, it also makes sense why you wouldn't have tried in as many different places. Because for you, you're like, I've been at the Taj Mahal or whatever, right? Like, yeah. you, you've seen the best there is. Why do you need to try something else? And I think that's kind of a question that we have in Seattle is just really understanding. I don't think there is an established, like, this is the best in Seattle. Right. And w- when we started the search, people were like, well, there's all these different styles of barbecue. It's like, well, none of them are going to be that well represented in Seattle. So I think it really is about kind of who's doing the best approximation of it here. Um, yeah. But one of the things that when we've done different searches, and I think that we're struggling with a little bit on the barbecue search is how much do we balance sides in this as well? Because when it's burgers, mm. fries matter, but we're really just ultimately judging the burger. You know, when it's sandwiches, like there really aren't, we're not judging pickles or whatever, right? But I do think for barbecue, the sides are an important part of that food experience, maybe more so than almost any other food we've searched for. Uh, and I'm curious for you, you know, how much you factor that into your enjoyment of barbecue. Uh, that's, a, that's another really great point. And I hadn't thought about it, uh, but I agree with you. Like it's sides really do matter. And a lot of people, you know, especially some of the most serious barbecue people that I've met, you know, will almost tell you that they are like, that they get more excited about the sides in places really? than they do. And so I think, I, yeah, I do think it's something that you should really take seriously, you know, I mean, and I think the, that you'll, the ones you'll most likely encounter, you know, the, that are most, I would say, associated with real true barbecue are of course, beans, mm-hmm. potato salad and coleslaw, you know, now you might find all sorts of other Southern stuff, you know, whether it's like grits or, and, and, you know, hush puppy, I don't know, you can, yeah. you can choose kind of what, what you want. Maybe you'll go through and you'll see like, you know, the, the places that you're going to check out, maybe you'll see what the sort of things that they most have in common on their menus, you know, and be able to sort of triangulate that way. Like if you see, if like a lot of people are trying brisket, then you can say, okay, well, like we can lay down some ground rules for brisket, but, but I think, I think sides are, are a lot of fun. And, you know, I certainly have my, especially at like coleslaw and potato salad, I have my strong likes and dislike. Like I do not like coleslaw that tastes really sweet, you know, um, or, um, you know, so I, I like it with it, you know, creamy is good. It's fine, but I like it to be kind of more on that vinegary side. And, um, you know, I also like, you know, you'll find some places, maybe it's not so much up there, but, you know, you can tell the places where they just order their, their potato salad pre-made and it comes in a tub from like Cisco foods or whatever, yes. and they scoop it out, you know, that, that would really bother me, but also beans like, you know, um, I know at Franklin beans are a big part of it too, because again, there a lot of their brisket trimmings and, and, you know, to get their great brisket, for instance, he trims off an incredible amount of, of the meat and, and the fat to, uh, to kind of get them into the shape that he thinks makes them pick up the smoke best along their oh. cooking journey. So they have a lot of scrap and a lot of that goes into the beans. And so his beans are considered exceptional. And I think that'll be something that'll be really fun for you to check out. Yeah. Sounds great. So, it's important. Yeah. 
unfortunately, when it comes to coleslaw, my preference is not to eat coleslaw at all. Oh, really? You're not a coleslaw person at all? <laughs> not a coleslaw guy. Uh, a lot of mac and cheese we've had at these places, I think, as oh, far as yeah. the sun. Uh, I was curious when you do get back here, I don't know if you were here long enough as a kid to have any sort of like food memories, but is there a specific place you try to to come uh, to eat while you're in town? Oh, well, always Dick's, you know, um, <laughs> I grew up our early years were on uh, on Capitol Hill and there's one there was that 15th Street or whatever over there, I think. Um, yeah, I always. Oh, you know, there was that place that I don't think, I don't think it's there anymore. They had those amazing, they were like Cuban or Puerto Rican sandwich, uh, started with a P. Yeah. Trying to rem- yes. They're, they're back, there? But it's, it's not, there's a different location that the original owners opened. Uh, and then the, there is Paseo, like the name was bought by somebody else, but it's not really the same. Yeah. And then also out of nostalgia, I like to go for fish and chips at Ivers. Um, <laughs> Is that is that considered exceptional? Exceptional? I mean, acceptable? I oh yeah, definitely okay. acceptable. We we weirdly we've talked about how we haven't talked about Ivers that much, mm-hmm. but as far as like we do a side podcast about Taco Time, um, yeah. if you remember Taco Time Northwest, and I feel like Ivers and Taco Time are kind of in that sort of same tier of like very very good fast food from the Northwest. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's most of my memories because I mean the restaurant scene there changes so quickly. And I've still been waiting on the sort of the higher end side of things. Um, I've been waiting more and more for Seattle to really blossom. I feel like, like for whatever reason, the sort of the, the, the food scene there has been, it, the, I don't know, it just has not like, it's not blossomed quite as much as I, you would have expected for a city, but I think that's changing. Um, I mean, I definitely, and I, I need to go back and eat around. I, I've always, uh, I'm friends with Renee Erickson and I, I love to check out all of her restaurants, yeah. you know, um, always. And they're just, they're really great places. But um, I was going to ask you, what it, is, are people in Seattle just like so over salmon that you would never <sighs> consider doing salmon for your, uh, for your research? I think salmon is a, is a strange one. You know, typically for our searches, we end up doing more like fast casual type foods, something mm-hmm. that you can grab and go or 100% accessible. Whereas salmon is being served more at like, you know, like a sit down restaurant is where you're going to have a nice piece of salmon. And so we honestly haven't considered that. Like we're in the tier, we've done uh, dumplings, ramen, Oh, uh, burgers, sandwiches. We did just finished up fried chicken. Um, that's kind of like the tier of foods that we're focused in and then various sweets along the way as well. Um, so, but I mean, obviously love salmon in every way. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what was the, uh, what was the, what did you find in dumplings? Cause I have, my sister lives over near, what is that? Din Tai Fung. She mm-hmm. lives, she lives close to the U district. And I think they have one down there, which yeah. I, I've been to a few times and I really enjoyed. Yeah. Din Tai Funk, definitely phenomenal. It's more of, um, it's like an international chain and we usually like to focus on local businesses more. Obviously went there and judged Din Tai Funk. Yeah, I mean, um, it was included. But yeah. a, a place called Dozone One, which is kind of like mm. the biggest like local dumpling chain and they're phenomenal and have these really excellent buns that are sort of like soup dumplings, but also buns. Mm. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. Well, um, and then what's, what did you guys find for burgers? And uh, 
<laughs> it's controversial. Yeah. Somebody, somebody here ruined the vote. I, I don't know if you saw a few years ago the uh, there was uh, it was Kevin Alexander. I forget who he was writing for, it was but for did Eater, right? I don't think it was for Eater. It was Thrillist, maybe uh, 100 Best Burgers in the Country, and he had Loretta's in Seattle. I want to say in his top ten, and oh. that's our personal favorite. Someone here did not vote for them in the bracket. So you need a up in the uh, up in uh, Fremont ended up winning. Oh, okay. Loretta's. All right. I don't think I've had Loretta's burger. I'll have to. Is it is it really hard to get in there? Uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a dive bar, basically, in okay. South Park. Those so, are my favorites. Those are yeah. my favorites. Um, oh, wow. Well, that's cool. Well, you guys are going to have a blast with this uh, barbecue thing. Um, did you, have you like already done preliminary research as to see what's, what's out there? Yeah. I mean, we've done our first couple of visits, went to a couple of spots that are staples. There's Jack's barbecue, which is, I think, you know, along the lines of what you were talking about of this group that in the wake of Aaron Franklin and everything has, uh, he, he took a class in Texas and, you know, got a smoker and started doing pop-ups and, and then opened a restaurant and now has four different locations. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's really successful. Yeah. And it's very, very central Texas, thoroughly central oh, really? Texas style. So, uh, so without, since we hadn't had this conversation yet, but I'd just be curious, or oh, maybe you can't talk about the, uh, your impressions yet. Are you saying <laughs> no, we that? can, we can. Okay. What, what, what did y'all think? I, it's definitely the best brisket in that I've had in Seattle. And we've heard that there's a place in Marysville that mm. does impressive central Texas barbecue. So that's going to be a haul to go up there, but that'll be one of the interesting things to do as part of this. But uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't think it was probably quite as good as the, the brisket I've had in, in, uh, in Austin or, you know, uh, at Lewis barbecue in Charleston, but uh, certainly better than anything else here. You would agree with that, right, Tristan? I, it's really probably, I mean, you know, we're just at the beginning of the search. Right. So it's almost like, I wish that I had a like plan to travel to Austin sometime coming up where I feel like that's kind of the best part about doing these searches is making a pilgrimage somewhere and being like, what does this taste like somewhere else? And what does this taste like here? And really kind of tasting them more or less back to back. Uh, and I ended up not going to South by Southwest this year, but I haven't been to Austin in like four years, but I want to get back to Austin and have barbecue there. And maybe I'll come up with an excuse to go there over the summer. Um, but uh, try it there and then come back and taste it here. But I think it's still a little bit too early. I think the brisket and the ribs, um, it was the the longer ribs that they have at Jack's. It wasn't the little like um, short oh, ribs, yeah. which I think are quite a bit better. That's the spare rib, right? Where mm -hmm. it's the, the longer piece. And for me personally, I think it's a much better rib rather than the little like two inch ones or whatever. Yeah, the There's so guys. much more meat on the bone and is, is cooked so much better. So uh I think for those right now it's, it's the leader Jack's, but we've only been to a couple locations. So I'm yeah. like, it's pouring rain in Seattle right now. But also, <laughs> like really could go for some barbecue right now. Oh, you know, by the way, uh, Lewis and Charleston, John Lewis, you know, open helped was Aaron Franklin's like right-hand man. They helped open that place together. So, uh, so I hear, I have not been to his place in Charleston, but I hear he's doing great stuff there. Um, and, and by the way, when you, when you do get a chance to get back to Austin, e let me know, email me because I, uh, I have I, a lot of people ask me about where to go in Austin. So I, I do keep up with it. And I do ask Aaron Franklin, you know, himself, like, Hey, what are you, what's going on in the barbecue scene right now? So I can tell people. So 
I can give you kind of an updated list. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. If, you, if you ever have something that you've typed out where you're like, here's where to go yeah. to somebody and you want to share that, we have sort of like, we haven't quite released this, but on the Peltoncast site, like uh, here's what to try in these cities. Oh, okay. We have a very thorough one in Nashville. Uh, have you done one for Portland yet? Uh, I have not gotten around to doing it, but at some point it's, it's really well. It's sort of just like you come across these, like you go somewhere and have a friend who's like, here's exactly where to go. You know, like the on the ground, not the Yelp perspective or whatever. And it's sort of like kind of want to be a resource because people ask us that all the time, which yeah. is like, what should I try in whatever city? And it's like, well, try these things. And it usually is it usually is better than, you know, going down the Yelp rabbit hole or whatever. So well, I will send I do have one for Austin. So I'll send perfect. it. Perfect. Yes, yeah, I would love that. And I'll and I'll check out your Nashville one because I think I'm going in a few weeks and I've never been to oh. Nashville. So Oh, excellent. It it is a very much like if you're staying on the east side of Nashville and you want to be in dive bars, this is where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh they, I went to a handful of places from it and it was definitely there were some excellent spots. Had one last question for you though before sure. we go. Uh and thank you so much for joining us, uh Jordan. My K. Pleasure. But uh, wanted to just understanding about your book that you wrote with Aaron Franklin is that as for folks who are potentially interested in starting out barbecue kind of, is it something if you're somebody who is like, I want to get into smoking meats or I've already smoked a few meats, but I want to get to expert level. Is that kind of what the book, having not read it myself, is that something that, that is going to be walked through in that book, like the history of it. And then also how to do it yourself as an individual. Right. Yeah. So, um, so uh, really good question. So the, the first book, Franklin Barbecue, is really about how to do what he does there at his restaurant. And um, I would say most of those are dependent on, well, they're not dependent, but it helps to have a kind of smoker that he uses. It doesn't have to be out of a thousand gallon propane tank, <laughs> but um, but like, you know, a little offset smoker where the, the you know, but you can also mimic, you can mimic that two zone cooking uh, with a normal sort of uh, grill too, like if you can just separate the the heat source from where the from where the meat is, you know, and get the smoke going across it. So it's um, I would say that it's like it's the basics. It tells you how to do a brisket, and you could follow the you could follow these instructions whether you have a big offset smoker and a huge wood pile, or you can follow it if you're trying to just do a half a brisket on a Weber kettle grill with some wood chunks and charcoal, you know? And so it's applicable for any of those. And because it really takes you the, when we talk about like our brisket recipe in that book, it's like 10 or 11 pages long, but there's only three ingredients salt, pepper, and brisket, you know? So it's really all about technique. And, and I would say that all the recipes, except for like the ones for the sides for the, um, are really all about technique. And in fact, the new book that we're working on, which will come out next year, which is called Franklin Smoke, um, it takes sort of the, the, we go back into brisket because he still gets asked so many questions about brisket all the time that I think we doubled down. And like the new brisket recipe is going to be like, 20 pages long. Um, it's like, um, it's ridiculous. And it's more of like a stream of conscious, you know, ver- taking you through, you know, every decision you're going to have to make during the time. Um, but, but we also talk about cooking on other grills um, and on fire pits and stuff like that. So I think, uh, so I would say, sorry for the long-winded response, but, um, but I think that 
they're definitely very, very useful, whether you're just starting out to do your first smoked meat on a Weber kettle grill, um, or whether you've got like a nice smoker that you dropped $1,500 on, you know. All right. Well, Tristan said it, but uh, thanks so much for taking the time, Jordan. This has been a really fun conversation and I think is going to help us as we continue our search for Seattle's best barbecue. Well, uh, thank you both so much for reaching out and, uh, and feel free if you have any questions or anything else, email me, let me know. I'm happy. I'm here for you. And I will now be following the podcast and can't wait to see what you guys come up with. All right, Jordan McKay. Uh, that was a great conversation. Honestly, it's really interesting thinking back on that conversation and leading into the one that we're going to have with the barbecue that we hit up this week at Row Row Barbecue. And I feel like Jordan McKay loved, loved everything about that talk. He ruined barbecue for me. I, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like whoever we went to this week, it was going to have such a tough act to follow <laughs> from talking to Jordan about the barbecue at Franklin Barbecue, which might be the best in the country. He's just describing all the different aspects of a brisket. And he's like, you need to have this and then this and then this. And you're just like, dog, like, I don't think any person in Seattle can do that. Right. And obviously Franklin Barbecue is considered to be maybe the greatest barbecue in the entire world. Like, I understand that has sold out every single day that they've been open as a location. They've been through fires. They've been through COVID. They've been through it all. Right. Franklin Barbecue has sold out a barbecue every single day that they've been open. I get it. But like. Try harder, Seattle. Come on. So, there, there, is a, there is a book with a recipe. There is a book with a manifesto. Well, right? no, no, I guess, did he call it a recipe? or The recipe is literally just, there's three, there's, it's salt, pepper, beef. Right. That's it. But like, I, I think in the book, they walk through how to do this. You know what I mean? It's there for the taking and people aren't doing it. And that to me is a shame. But it's. It's a lot of time and a lot of investment of resources and resources and the craft that it takes to get there. So uh, you mentioned we went this week to Roro Barbecue, which is a place that we've been you know, a few times in the past and have, have tremendously time, enjoyed right? it. It has been a while. I, I think it was more of a sandwich spot for us historically. And I think that's kind of, if you look at their menu, the specialties. So I, I'm pretty confident I had never had brisket there before. Uh, we both got the same thing because I told you what you got. And you you decided just order, just follow my order. Uh, got the two meat plate with brisket and ribs, then a side pulled pork sandwich to try that, uh, and then mac and cheese and, and barbecue baked beans as the two sides. So I mean, the brisket, the bark was I think really quite delicious. Had some good flavor and was perfectly cooked. Unfortunately. The, the the bulk of the meat dried out pretty considerably. I, I think that's really it. So you, when you're looking at brisket, in the way that he described like ribs, like they should pull apart, right? They sh- they should It should be able to be pulled off the bone, that little bit of tug, right? And, and I think brisket is kind of the same way, right? It should be very soft, you know, when it's cooked for a long He should still be able enough. to cut it. And, and this was just, it really tasted like something that I would cook at home in the oven. Right. Without a smoker of any kind. That's what it tasted like to me was just like if I go and buy a brisket and I cook it low and slow in the oven. I don't think you're going to get the bark that good. I really don't. Maybe not. But I I was not that impressed with even the bark. It was kind of just like the flavor that was coming out of the meat and the juiciness that comes out of the meat. Like that is what makes brisket special. Yeah. That's what makes it the best piece of barbecue meat. Right. And I was like, okay, I'll, I will, I will accept that 
Row Row Barbecue is not doing any sort of specific. They're not like, you know, they're not Central Texas style. They're not Carolina style. They're not Kansas City style. They have a lot of different sauces, a lot of different sauce options, and they have plates and they have ribs. They do a little bit of everything, right? Which is, I think, a lot of the barbecue places that we see in the Northwest, is, is you sort of alluded to in the conversation, that they try to do a little bit of everything. And I think the whole process kind of ends up being that every bit, like you like the pulled pork sandwich. I thought that was definitely the, the standout of the, the meat. It was my least favorite. Really? Of anything. I mean, the the I think it was a brioche bun that was really good. We're judging brioche buns now? Like, come on. I mean, pulled pork, obviously. You're grasping at straws here if you're judging the brioche bun. More sauce. They didn't make the brioche about. bun. Like, the, the, the sauce... The sauce was fine. Got the Roro sauce. Where for me, if there's a sauce or something that's named after the business, I'm definitely getting that, right? That is my philosophy as well. But like, it's supposed to be like sweet and spicy at the same time. And it was kind of just like, I don't know, maybe the combination of sweet and spicy is bland. But like, it just did not hit for me in really any way. Any of the three pieces that we had, uh, I thought the sides were fine. Like, the, honestly, the, the beans were my favorite part of the entire meal, like the baked beans I thought were pretty solid. I thought the mac and cheese was the best part for me. But if we're talking about a barbecue place and for each of us, if we thought the sides was the best aspect of it, it was fucking popping in there. And I like Roro. That's the thing is like all of a sudden, like I, I like the experience of going to Roro. I do not like the experience of being in Wallingford, Washington. I will tell you that is the worst place in all of the city of Seattle. I, but I don't know that you've been in all of the city of Seattle. It, it's interesting because uh, as you mentioned, it's been a period of time since we went there. And the neighborhood around it has changed dramatically. So I lived like on Wallingford Avenue, not, uh, you know, maybe like two to three blocks north of Roro. So like, you know, within a five minute walk when I was in college, that was obviously a very long time ago. But like the the number of condos that have been built there and then the fan, fine dining that now you've got Tavolata yeah, is Tavolata across, the, across street. the street. God. So... It's a it's a very it's different like a experience. Fucking, like, and, soul cycle come to life. And like, Roro is kind of the the remnant of what that neighborhood used to be like. You know, it's funny sometimes. Like, I, I will find myself in conversations that I try to get out of as fast as possible, uh, where people are like, "Oh, Seattle, it's gone to shit. You can't do, go down there anymore." And I'm like, "I know. Have you been to Wallingford?" <laughs> It's just like, like when Jan is like, oh, you can't even go to Seattle anymore. Nobody goes there. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, somebody is shining a light on how horrible it is to go to Wallingford and Fremont. You're, you're right. You can't go there because there's no parking available anywhere. <laughs> I just, I'm like, I don't want to be here. I'm like, I don't belong here. I don't want to be here. I don't need to be here. Give me the fuck out of here as fast as possible. I swear to God. I'm just like, I would rather be at the Second Avenue McDonald's right now. Like th those, those people that are complaining about how you can't go to Seattle anymore. Like that, this is their utopia. Fucking Wallingford. No, because they want more parking. That's why they like the suburbs. <laughs> Maybe Bellevue is their utopia. I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure Lincoln Square is it. The Magianos. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I just, it, it was really tough though. Like coming from that conversation and ha having this. Yeah, I think this was going to be difficult for whichever location we reviewed. But uh, I do think probably at this point that uh, Woody, you uh, you obviously were very critical of Pecos Pit Barbecue last week on this very podcast. This was it was better than Pecos. Oh, that is 
That it, is an abominable take. It was definitely better than Pecos. Like, I mean, it's just a totally different thing also. But, like, the meat was better. I, I had it today, and it actually tasted, like, pretty good. It, it was just, it didn't have the, like, key elements of a good brisket. Where it was just, like, I feel like if you, we talked about this before, like, where it's, like, the replacement level for brisket. It's not like pizza. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. brisket, if it's totally done badly, is not really worth eating. You know? So I just, like, and I kind of felt the same way about ribs, too. Where it was a little bit, like, I, I don't know why these ribs aren't better. You know, like you're eating it and you're like, I feel like these ribs should be better. I, I honestly, so far, we've been to three locations and had this conversation about, you know, what Aaron Franklin is doing. And I do think that Jack so far is is obviously he's trying to kind of emulate that process a little bit. I mean, they've got the smokers going there on the back patio at, the, at, at least the uh, uh, location in, I don't know why I'm blanking on what I should call that, on, on airport Soto. way. That's the one you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, the original location in, like, yeah. Soto. Uh, but, like, the that's the only place that is really trying to emulate something like Aaron Franklin is doing. Maybe it's not perfect. It's a very, very difficult thing to perfect. But I don't but, think you need to do that to have good barbecue. Because, first off, that's only one style of barbecue. No, you don't barbecue. need to do that. But you, all, you need to do something well. Like, I don't know if you can pinpoint. Again, the thing that Roro does well is I'm like, I love the $6 beer in a... You know, mason jar you know what i mean i thought that was phenomenal but like and the experience the the tables outside again i like going to roro it was just when i'm sitting there judging the food it is a it is a different experience do we so next week are we going to uh hit up wood shop i think i really think it's time Although you you want to save that for a sunny day, and it doesn't sound like there are many oh, of those God. in the forecast going forward. Happy June, happy June. It was actually pretty nice out when I was going when I was sitting at Roro outside. It was, yeah, it was nice when I was there. I'm so I'm, I didn't forward. get judged poorly because I was upset about the weather. Okay, good, <laughs> good. That's a barbecue runs the risk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's let's discuss that though because I do think Woodshop is probably the other one that I feel like has a chance to be a competitor here. I th- I think there's more of a good barbecue out there than than you realize. I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. I think we're going to find that good barbecue in special places. <laughs> it is really what it's going to be. Special I, places. I, I think we're going to find it in like it, off hard the road. To get. It, you like you're Marysville, driving along. apparently. Maybe Marysville, but it might even be in like you're driving yeah. along and you see a dude with a smoker on the side of the road and you're just like, I want to go have that barbecue. Well, that then, that to me is like yeah. That's where we're going to find the really... I mean, there's this spot in downtown right in front of Wajamaya where it's just a dude in a tent and a sign that says barbecue and and you could see his smoker back there and you're like, yeah, I want that. That is what I'm looking for. I mean, there's a the Doug Baldwin event that, that promises barbecue is, I believe, this Saturday. Is that this Saturday? I believe it's this Saturday. So we may have to look into going there when I assume it's going to be pouring rain. Oh, God. <laughs> because, because it is... June 11th in Seattle. Why wouldn't it be pouring rain? With that, it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. It's fitting that the Mariners are playing the Astros this week. Because this weekend I witnessed the most coordinated cheating effort (laughs) by a baseball manager since the Astros were outed in 2019. And of course, you know what manager I'm talking about. That's right. ESPN's Kevin Pelton. (laughs) There was some bad blood brewing even from last year. 
So prior to the game, I went to painstaking effort to make sure that my team, the 2001 Seattle Mariners, but only in the regular season, not the playoffs, just the regular season, please, were treated to a fair matchup. And I have to say, I was shocked, shocked when I was met with with dismissiveness by my counterpart. And now, now I know why. It was part of the most devious cheating campaign imaginable. Some of the scandalous acts you pulled during this game. Trying to turn a ground rule double into a home run. Forcing a trade for my best player an hour before the game. In return for somebody who wasn't even there. Running through your batting order multiple times in one inning. Rampant hitting ball tricks. Nefarious (laughs) base running advice. Having older siblings, quote, hit for their little brother. And the list goes on. So... Enjoy your victory in protest, Team Luca, because Team two th- the 2001 Seattle Mariners, but only in the regular season, not the playoffs, just the regular season, please, will not forget these misgivings soon. And I'm sorry to say this, but I had to go all the way up to the commissioner. And just like A.J. Hinch, you have been issued a one-year suspension from Children's Baseball Management, dated retroactively to May 8th, 2022. So hopefully in that time, you could think about what you've done, and I will not be seeing you again because your petition has been denied. I gotta say, in my defense... A lot of these things were because of baby fantasy genius. He was really managing the team. I was out there coaching third base. I'm like, wait, why? Are, why? He already came up this inning. Why is he coming up again? Oh, so and, sh- he's the Alex Cora of the situation. You're shifting blame, Carlos <laughs> Beltran. Come on. Uh, oh, I had. Oh, I had no idea what was going on. All I heard was banging. I I assume it might have been the manager of his uh, his baseball team. <laughs> Who was behind this? He was in the dugout. I wasn't there. The, the, we went through, me and Baby Fantasy Genius, you're clearly your shadow manager. Yeah. Drafted teams. He had seen the players play before. In the morning. We, we paired everybody off. Drafted teams. It was a fair process. Right? We went through and we drafted uh, kids. We drafted adults separately. And then... The coach of his baseball team, a college baseball player, demands to play on his team, even though he was rightfully drafted by my team. So I trade him. I trade him for a player uh, who I expect to be there, who uh, had to work. <laughs> that often happens to the Mariners, too. I trade for a guy, and you know, he's got to do his day job. I think that was the Eric Bedard trade. Oh, no. <laughs> <sighs> And and what was I left with? I was left with nothing. But I was left with my morals, most importantly. I think I think that's the most important aspect of the game, is you know, the high ground. I think the most important aspect of the game is that we had, the big fantasy genius had a great time, and his team won on a walk-off. It's unclear which would point because the value of your ground rule double. Like, we had the moment of everyone celebrating at home play on this inside the park home run. You that was understand? Going to be a walk-off. I was trying to set it up for Baby Fantasy Genius to have, or a kid, a child. I didn't want a fucking 40 year old woman to have the like hit of the game, to end the game. I wanted one of the kids from the team to have the like moment to have the walk off. And they did. They did have that. Well, you know what 40 year old man didn't have that moment? <laughs> it was me. Because I popped out and then had like a weak dribbler along the line. Did you pop out? Yeah. In your first at-bat? I did. Ouch. Yeah. 
uh, that middle fantasy genius, babier fantasy genius, uh, made contact with right as he was about to go into foul territory. So it was technically he, a hit. Exactly. It's a fair ball if he makes contact in fair territory. I don't uh, know why you're disputing this. Oh, I do know why you're disputing this. I mean, the, the you set expectations very high for my performance, and I did not live up to them. Nobody, nobody hit the, There was one person who hit the ball over the fence, yeah. but it wasn't fair. I was kind of shocked. Like, the fences were not that deep. No. I was and shocked there were that a lot there of were cars parked behind any them. cars <laughs> destroyed, <laughs> dented from the game. Uh, well, I ended up with an inside-the-park home run. And and well, I was hitting last in the order, so I had ch- like. And the kids didn't really grasp the concept. Of, we just need to throw the ball home <laughs> because you can't do anything <laughs> if we have the ball at home. <laughs> and yet they're just trying to throw a third. So you know we're gonna work on that strategy for whenever my suspension is lifted. <laughs> by, who's the commissioner here, Mrs. Fantasy? Genius? Don't worry about it. Just the commissioner. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Somehow you went to Bud Sealing and not the current commissioner. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, but your team ended up... I mean, again, you you had the person whose birthday it was on your team who weirdly demanded to be on your... It was when you hit the ball at fucking... Uh, what's it called? Southern Heights Elementary. At Southern Heights Elementary, you hit it over the fence, into the street, Just into the golf course, into Glen Ingram's the golf passing course. Cars. <laughs> So when you did that, I think that's when Baby Fantasy Genius was convinced wants to that... be on my team. No, I feel like that's a historic thing. Well, and his coach said that he had to be on his team. His coach was like ready to play against children. Oh. I think if you've coached children for an entire year, your interest in Look, just rocking those children at baseball is very high. I don't think any of the adults there weren't ready to play against children. <laughs> It really was just it was it was like all the children had a good time, but it was also fulfilling every single adult's dream. <laughs> Cause we have to sit through all these baseball games and see these kids. It's just like you're like, God damn it, put me out there. Put me in. Or coach. whatever, right? It's just like I could scoop up that ball from short and make that throw. So we finally had a chance. Surprising number of double plays turned in this game. Oh, I actually thought the defense was quite good. The infield defense was very strong. The outfield defense maybe not quite as much. That's where the kids were playing was in the infield. Yeah. They also were way more ruthless about... Uh, Throwing out very small children. <laughs> very small children. Yeah. Maybe middle fantasy genius did get an inside the park out run there. <laughs> I had to walk Mateo off. He like got to third base and was thrown out, and I was just like escorted him back to the <laughs> dugout. Because <laughs> I was like, these asshole kids just threw you out of third. I think that might have been me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I kind of like forgot, like it was just faking the play, and I didn't think about the fact that it was him running to third. Do I have to redo the takes again? <laughs> that might have been me. Only time oh, I threw it out all day. Instincts kicked in, and I had to get a five-year-old out. <laughs> oh my god. <clears throat> The the uh, the your petition was denied. <laughs> Can't wait until next year's game. <laughs> it's gonna be every child on Lucas baseball team is gonna do this for their birthday party, yeah. which is great because I want to keep playing baseball against children. Am I getting invited to their <laughs> yeah. birthday parties though? I'll be I'll be like this birthday invite comes with a plus one, right? <laughs> be like you remember that guy. Who was sort of supposed to be the coach, but mostly just stood in the outfield and got a five-year-old out on a tag. I don't need any of the pizza. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he's good. He doesn't need the pizza. He just wants to play baseball against children. I, I can go to watch my I, My other favorite piece is the adults just like so mad at themselves for not getting a hold of balls. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you said a the lot same of pressure. thing. I was infuriated with myself. <laughs> uh, the coach of the team, who again is like 23 years old or whatever. So, of course, he wants to just play baseball with children. But he was just like, he hit the ball almost out of the park. And he was just like, ugh, it was off the end of the bat. And he was just like, like beating himself up about it. Yep. I'm like, this is a children. There's literally three-year-olds playing in this game. <laughs> like, you're fine. Look, you don't, you know, you have high expectations of yourself. I wasn't worried about disappointing anyone else. I was only worried about disappointing myself. Well, is for the uh, Seattle Mariners. Uh, they took two out of three at Baltimore and then again over the weekend in Texas with four consecutive games decided by one run, then took the first game in Houston 7-4 on Monday before losing 4-1 on Tuesday. Ugh. Were you watching this game? No. They had the bases. I was, I was I at mean, the storm game. It all was for naught, but they had the bases loaded in the bottom of the eighth with one out and Toro hit into a double play. They were, do- they were down 2-1. And and they then were gave only up- down 2-1 at that point? Yeah, and then they gave up a two-run homer in the top of the ninth. Huh. Well... This Friday, they'll be back home. And third Pelton brother, Mina Kimes, will be there throwing out the first pitch. And second Pelton brother, you second Pelton brother. will be in attendance at this game. Yeah, kind of randomly. Very excited. I got to get there early for Mina, though. Yeah. This you is an important moment. I'll post it on the Pelton cast Instagram. Please do. We, we need a uh, trade grade on the pitch. Is uh, that what is that what trade grades are? No, <laughs> you grade for first pitches. <laughs> it's just uh, you know anything you do, apply a grade to. Anything is a, that's a grade is a trade grade to you. Yes. Okay. Uh, what little, would you grade the trade of the best player who was playing in the game for a person who didn't show up for my team or for your team? <laughs> this was an A for my team. <laughs> you also had his son too. Had the game winning hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of unfortunate Kraken news this week. Goaltender Chris Drieger suffered a torn ACL playing for Canada in the World Championships and uh, will miss a substantial part of the upcoming 2022-23 season. So uh, Philip Grubauer, now kind of the only experienced goaltender on the uh, Kraken roster, healthy going into next season. So we'll see how they address that. Can I do it once for all time's <laughs> sake? Of course, yes. Kraken! <sighs> that is that is the most the Kraken have only existed for a year, but that's the most Kraken thing to have happened. Oh boy, oh this, boy! This team was cursed before they even started. Injured in the World Championship. Buckle up, just wait. You'll have missed the playoffs for 21 years, and say to yourself on June 5th, ah, they're only three out of the third <laughs> wild card. <laughs> you know, there's still hope. <laughs> they just keep adding wild card teams. I mean, you could say that NHL and NBA invented having that many wildcard teams. Uh, Sounders coming off the international break. An unusual Tuesday match next week against the rival Vancouver Whitecaps, who are one point up in the MLS standings right now, but Sounders have two matches in hand against Vancouver, which is why the Whitecaps are 10th in the West in points per match. They're minus eight goal differential, 13th of the 14 teams. So, uh, now, is that, that a derby match? I, not as much so as Portland, but yes. It's, I mean, miles-wise, it's probably shorter than Portland. In fact, it's definitely shorter than Portland. Oh, it's, yes, it's clearly shorter, but... So you're saying that the Derby doesn't extend past international lines? 
Uh, it, it extends. It just there's like a multiplier on it. Okay, <laughs> because of the kilometers. <laughs> that all that all totally makes sense to me. <laughs> that logic shakes yeah. out. Yeah, good. I'm glad it does. Well, there's a derby matchup coming for Oil Rain, but first on Saturday they lost one nothing at the Chicago Red Stars. Is U.S. Women's National Teamer Mallory Pugh had the lone goal? Have you o- been to a Mariners game against the Blue Jays? Because <laughs> even though tr- it's it, it, Toronto is very, Way east. very very far away, you have the international multiplier for kilometers, and it still feels like it's a derby match. Like it feels like the Mariners' biggest, not even maybe biggest rival, but like the most out of town fans who are at a Mariners game. I don't I, know Red Sox and Yankees games. Though. I'll see on Friday. Yeah. Uh, well, so the Blue Jays is it's. Blue Jays Mariners games are the ultimate example of why We the North is a slogan that makes sense for the Toronto Raptors in an entirely different sport. Because people in Portland, for some reason in particular, like to bitch about this because Portland is actually farther north than Toronto. They care about that. We don't care about this in Seattle. Well, we don't have an, have an NBA team currently during the We the North era, so it hasn't been as big of a concern. But like the point is that even though Portland might be north of Toronto... Vancouver is north of Portland, mm-hmm. and the people in Vancouver are generally Raptors fans, and they are definitely Blue Jays fans, and they are coming down kilometers, miles. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> They're coming down for those Mariners games. Filling I, I think it is underrated that the Mariners have not taken on the Blue Jays as a rival. It's yeah, just like well, they have really no natural rivals because they haven't been good enough. Oh, to have... What about our fierce rivalry with the San Diego Padres, oh, our interleague pa- rivals? I actually like the Padres. Oh, you like the Padres. Everybody like, hates San Diego. I think I made that pretty clear recently. Uh, <laughs> very anti the city of San Diego. Very pro the Padres. But like the Blue Jays. Can we get this started? We're going to start a Mariners rivalry? I think so. With the listener? I think so. We already started a rival with the San Diego Waves. Well, San Diego Wave. Look. God, I hate those Wave. <laughs> so back to the rain. Uh, Mallory Pugh had the lone goal in the opening minute of the second half on Saturday as the rain lost one nothing in Chicago. Rain had just one shot on goal in that match. Now part of a four-way tie for a third of the team, league's teams for fourth place in NWSL with nine points each. Though the rain seven games played are the most of that group, which is bad. Uh, rain headed down to San Diego on Saturday to face those waves, oh. uh, who stayed atop the NWSL standings with a two-two road oh. draw this weekend. You against... throw out the records though when when the all oh, rain played the San of course, Diego waves. Of course, against the Kansas City Current. Good old-fashioned hate. Alex Morgan scored both goals in that draw against the current, giving her eight on the season, twice as many as any other NWSL I player. Mean, it kind of checks out. I mean, Morgan hasn't been that dominant lately in NWSL. I mean, really? you know, her domestic career has been injury plagued a lot of times. So this is exciting for the Wave fans who invaded. <laughs> what do you think Lumen that Field? Wave organization is doing here? <clears throat> You think they're cheating, dude? Just I like, wouldn't put anything past them. Wow. Those wave organization. <laughs> I uh, Seattle Storm wrapped up their eight-game homestand on Tuesday night earlier eight this game season. Eight-game homestand? Eight-game homestand out of a 36-game Who season. Who scheduled this? Uh, Kathy Engelbert, I guess. <laughs> not, not really, but... 
I want to see a 30 for 30 about how they schedule the WNBA. <laughs> it tied to the <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's similar to the process for the NBA. Okay. There's a, there's a... Was there a baseball one? Was there a 30 for 30 about how they schedule? There's like two people who do all the baseball scheduling. Maybe a 30 for 30 short. They, Maybe that the NBA it. used to be like that, but now they have a giant program that they use. I was going to say, I think the computers do it. Yeah, handle of it. course. Yeah. And the computers spit out the AK Holmes' hand. I don't know who can argue with them. <laughs> Sometimes there's glitches in the computer. Oh. Uh, so over the weekend, a, a tough weekend for the Storm. It lost 68-51 on Friday against Dallas, their lowest point total since 2015 with Brianna Stewart scoring 27 of the 51 oh points. God. It was the fewest, if you took out the leading score, the fewest points scored by the rest of a team since 2004 wow. in the WNBA. That was, I was very proud of that stat. Uh, Sunday, during the midst of that baseball game, I was not in attendance as they lost 93-86 to the Connecticut Sun, who uh, have reestablished themselves as perhaps the best team in the league and at the very least in that top tier with the Las Vegas Aces. Who's the Sun star? John Quill Jones, who was last season's oh, okay. MVP, and she and Brianna Jones, an all-star who comes off the bench for them. She was wow. an all-star last year. Jamal she comes Crawford off the bench. status. Uh, they overpowered the Storm in the paint, combining for 46 <clears throat> points on 16 of 26 shooting. Uh, so even though Subert and Ezie Magbagor came back from their uh, stint in health and safety protocols and combined for 36 points, Storm still lost that one as uh, they were outscored 32-19 in the fourth quarter of that game. Uh, Tuesday night, though, a better performance against the Dream. Uh, another strong performance from Ezie Megbegor. 26 points from Jewel Lloyd, whose mom sang at halftime. Oh, wow. The game. It was a big night. They had, they had like kind of a family reunion thing going on uh, with everybody wearing T-shirts. It was very exciting. Noelle Quinn got her first career technical as oh, a coach. Oh, wow. What did she do? Uh, you know, it was funny because I, I heard from someone who was nearby that it, she actually had less to say this time than she had the last couple of games when she was trying to get technicals. Because I had asked her about this on Friday. Everyone was unhappy with the officiating. It was like, I can't remember Noel Quinn ever getting a technical. And she had a very funny comment about, like, I'm trying, but they won't give <laughs> me a trying, technical. Jennifer. <clears throat> so she finally accomplished that go. goal. On on Tuesday, I night. feel like it would be that would be my favorite part about being a coach. <laughs> Technical, I mean, it's expensive. You got to write a check. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. How much? I don't think it's very much in the WNBA, but still, that's bullshit. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's how it works. Just getting tossed from a game, though, you know, it would feel pretty freaking good. If you could just going back to your desk, kicking up, really make a spectacle. <laughs> oh, Lupinella style. Yeah, you can't kick any bases in basketball. Just so one the, time. There's there's baseball ejections are one the best ejection. large orange round ball that you can kick in basketball. And Bobby Bobby Knight has kicked that ball. <clears throat> it's very weird that NFL coaches don't get ejected. Like, is there ever a scenario where an NFL, there must be some that's happened? <laughs> Because soccer coaches will at least get like sent up to the box or something, or maybe they get can sent get away. carded. Yeah, there really just isn't a mechanism for NFL coaches. But you, can, I mean, players get ejected. Just NFL coaches never get ejected for whatever reason. I feel like players get ejected for stuff that happens on the field, though. Like you're not going to have a dirty hit from Pete Carroll. <laughs> well, but there's like punches could be thrived. I mean, goodness, not to say, but like, maybe it's because they're too far from each other. I, you know, right, because the, the George Carlin are Bob opposite. Hill almost got into it. One of my favorite memories. But Bob Hill and George Carl. Yeah, but when he was the coach of the Spurs. Yes, Bob Hill. Is there any other sport where the because co- in soccer they're on the same sideline, right? 
Yes. So is there any other sport where the coaches are in the exact opposite sidelines? Uh, Baseball sort of, but like they're still pretty close. Yeah. No, there's a large geographic distance between the coaches, but it's not like basketball coaches get ejected primarily because they're fighting with each other. (laughs) They get ejected because they're yelling at the referees. Well, basketball is really quick to eject people. It's a very odd thing. I just like never have contemplated that before in my life. But there, coaches don't get ejected. It, it's like the way the way that your brain functions for what is okay in different sports. Like oh yeah, it, you're There's just like just so much complaining that gets allowed by to referees in soccer. Oh yeah, and I'm like, oh, my god, that would be a t- like five technicals <laughs> in basketball. I mean, it's kind of the same in football too, where you can just complain all you want, basically. Like, I feel like the coaches can say basically whatever they want to the refs, but also you just you got to move on so quickly in football. True. I guess the sport itself is designed more because they don't stop to like, you know, shoot free throws. I mean, there is an enforcement of a penalty, but I, I think there's something too that they're that far away. Like, if you put those two teams next to each other on a sideline, I think you'd have some ruckus that was started. I'm sure you would. Maybe, maybe a league should explore this. <laughs> the, but, coming the thing back. is about Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll wouldn't get ejected for a dirty hit because if you'll say one thing about Pete Carroll, he teaches clean hits. Unquestionably. Yeah, the, maybe, maybe the players will be nowhere near the ball, <laughs> oh, nowhere no. near the receiver, just a coverage that does not make the sense. The main thing is he teaches clean hits that only focus on stopping the run. <laughs> yes. No, the Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll focuses on clean hits. Say what, you, say what you will about Pete Carroll. For sure. As for the storm, <laughs> uh, they improved 6-5 and five on the season, so... On the one hand, Sunday was the first time all season they've had their full complement of players with Mercedes Russell returning from a non-basketball injury on Friday. On the other, went kind of shaky 5-3 and three on this eight-game homestand, uh, and now we'll play 16 of their final 25 games on the road. 16 in a row. Yeah, 16 in a row on the road. They can see the team again until <laughs> August. Uh, so, you know, the, that doesn't make you feel great about where they are after, they didn't really take full advantage of this homestand. They were able to stay afloat through a, a number of players contracting COVID. I feel like all of this is leading toward a reunion of sorts. What's that? Lauren Jackson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? I, I don't think she's coming to, to the WNBA, but I, mean, who, who, I would be glad. Who has have... Lauren Jackson's rights? Oh, the Storm still have that. Yeah. I'm just saying. Voluntarily retired, so. If she's going to play in the WNBA, it certainly would be with the Storm. There, there, it's going to happen this year. <laughs> I will, I will, I will bet you on that one. <laughs> is Lauren Jackson still playing well in Australia? Right. I mean, it it hasn't been as notable lately, but I I assume so. That's what Lauren Jackson does. She just puts up numbers. It's not it notable because Lauren Jackson's just balling. It is kind of low level competition she's playing against. Not it's not WNBA competition. You don't think she can who? I, I how, mean, how old is Lauren Jackson right now? She's younger than Sue. She recently turned... Uh, yeah, she recently would have turned... Well, now I guess she turned 41 as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a long time that she's been retired. Her last season in the WNBA was my last season with the Storm, which was 10 years ago. <laughs> They were like having a thing about, you know, the Was that also my last season of the story? No, you, no, yours was earlier. They were having a thing about the anniversary of Title IX, and I hadn't really processed that, like, oh, yeah, I did a story about the 40th anniversary of Title IX in my last season with the storm, which was 10 years ago. 
Now it's the 50th anniversary. Anyways, the storm playing those games on the road starts this weekend as they travel to Dallas for a pair of games. We'll need to win at least one to have a chance at the head-to-head series against the Wings, who are half game up in the standings, or now tied in the standings, I should say, at 6-5. and five. So uh, some important road games coming up for the Storm here. Uh, quick UW men's basketball note, they landed a significant transfer on Monday when former Kentucky forward Keon Brooks Jr. announced he's headed to UW. Hello. Brooks was a top 25 recruit heading into Kentucky, but uh, played limited minutes off the bench as a freshman, just 16 games as a sophomore before putting together a solid 2021-22 season, starting all 33 games he played, averaging 10.8 <clears throat> points, 4.4 rebounds. Unfortunately, it's yet another <laughs> non-shooter. <laughs> For the Huskies, just 18 three-pointers in his 80 games at Kentucky on 23% shooting, but still managed average efficiency last season, and his BPM would have ranked second on the Huskies behind Terrell Brown Jr. He'll slot in as an undersized power forward at six foot seven, replacing Emmett Matthews Jr. after his transfer. <clears throat> Brooks does after have... he oh, pull the hater, yes. Uh, Brooks has up to two years of eligibility remaining, but would expect him to turn pro after this season since he was in the NBA draft this year before withdrawing last week. So why is Keon Brooks transferring? Just not is not going to be part of the Kentucky rotation or I mean I think it's the classic Kentucky thing. We've recruited someone else to take your spot. So if you're not going pro, you kinda gotta go somewhere else. Uh where is Keon Brooks from? I don't know where he's from. That's a great question. I don't think he's got any particular geographic ties to the West Coast. Lafayette, New York. <laughs> no, no, or, or upstate New York. I can name tour dates on the uh, Death Cab for Cutie tour coming up. Uncasville, Connecticut. Oh, wow. Well, that's where the Sun play. Is uh, that? Oh, yeah. They're playing at Mohegan Sun Arena. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. <clears throat> Fort Wayne, Indiana. No, no, wow. This is a completely random one. There's no connection here. <laughs> How did you find out about the University of Washington, Keon Brooks? <laughs> <laughs> you looked it up online. It's like, yeah, what, what pamphlet did you see that led you to the was University of Washington? I was from UW. Like, ah. I think I really wanted to play for Coach Romar. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that is a dude, baffling transfer. I saw Gonzaga also landed like the top transfer in the country. Oh, I mean, yes, of course. Just fucking... And Drew Timmy went back. Great. It's just like. T- Drew Timmy is like the perfect. What what do they call the the rule that players can uh, that they can get sponsorships? Oh, NIL. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Drew Timmy is like a walking, oh. talking NIL for fucking Spokane, Washington. He's raking in that yeah. Northern. What's the name of the casino that they have the commercials for? Northern Quest Casino. Northern is Quest that casino, what Drew yeah. Timmy is on? Yeah. yeah. No, Drew Timmy is just like look. You're you're white. You're kind of unattractive. You're like kind of a college level basketball player. Just bring bring it on. There's so many car dealerships in Spokane, Washington that would be happy to have you. Thanks, Drew I Timmy. I mean, it is a fascinating. Like it's filled the market inefficiency because there's all these like Oscar. Sheway, who went back to Kentucky, as an example of this as well. Like, he's not that valuable as an NBA player, but he's an awesome. Uh, did John Brockman go out early? Uh, no, I think he played all four years. God, John Brockman could have made so much money. Oh yeah, yeah. Just Shoreline has so many businesses to advertise. He missed well. He missed his calling. <laughs> it's really sad. It is really sad for John. Bray. He had he had a solid NBA career. He had a better uh, NBA career than True Timmy could ever sniff for himself, but. That's great for Drew Timmy. Uh, did you hear? hear I, it? I so, just, who is the transfer? Do you remember their name? 
I don't remember their name off the top. Whatever their name is, I just really appreciate that they decided that they didn't want to play against quality competition for a year. That they said to themselves that they were they were good. They things were hard enough, and I want to say the Big Twelve. Malachi Smith from where? Transfer to Gonzaga. Just that's the headline on the URL from Auburn, Georgia. No, he's he's from much smaller school. Malachi Smith is from. Let me see here. No, 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 I gotta keep scrolling. So you're, you're gonna I feel like this bit. can't take you that long. <clears throat> it can. I, he's not as highly ranked on the uh, athletics list of impact transfers as I thought. Uh, Chattanooga. Oh, Southern wow. Conference Player of the Year. So he actually managed to come from Chattanooga and say to himself, <laughs> the level of competition that I'm playing against Chattanooga, that yeah, is too difficult. Yeah, they played against Duke last year in the regular season. Like, Chattanooga did? No. Oh. Gonzaga. Uh, they play, to play oh, against Alabama. Okay, so he wants to play Alabama. They play football. What do you mean they played against Alabama? Come on, Alabama was an extremely talented team. Anyway, he, he said that the Chattanooga competition was a little bit too difficult for him, and he just <sighs> he wanted to get to Gonzaga and the West Coast Conference where he could just take a year off. And th- honestly, I personally appreciate that. I think it is a really good decision. You could get drafted really high, and look, the thing is those those checks still cash. When you get drafted high, you don't need to play in the NBA well. That's okay. But just, it's it's a really good decision to to build up the draft stock. Hope you're going to will be either the number one or number two pick in the NBA draft. That does, that's incredible to be the number one or number two pick and to be <laughs> out of the league by 2025. <laughs> it's just like the, you know, it's an incomparable thing. He can follow in Jalen Suggs' footsteps. Uh, anyway... I think there's an incoherent thing. I know what it is. What? I, it's you. It's you. Is there is there a retort? <laughs> is it Dan Dickow's career? Adam Morrison's? Austin Kelly, Day? Kelly Olenek. Is this thing on? Oh, Kelly Olenek is your retort? <laughs> wow. It's a remarkable long NBA career. Yeah. You're, you're just like, they managed to... You cre- didn't even see those two months Kelly Olenek played for the Houston Rockets after he got traded for Victor Oladipo. <laughs> it was life-altering. It's transcendent. I I really appreciate that you made my point here, um, but no for for the <laughs> for the Huskies, uh, Keon Brooks. T- hmm. Yeah, that exciting. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up with the Seahawks. <laughs> what? What? Okay. Did you? Have you you else? have this in the Seahawks section. Yes. Yeah. Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network was the first to report that DK Metcalf was not reporting for minicamp without a new contract and is instead rehabbing at home in L.A. Despite having previously been present for voluntary OTAs earlier this offseason, Bob Condota the Seattle Times was the first to report that this is not an excused absence, so he can potentially be fined for the uh, three days of minicamp he misses. Not it's story. not that big of a deal. It's, it's, it's just like we've done this shit over and it's over and over again. It's a story. Yeah. Although we are looking at like less than 100 days out from the NFL season starting. <clears throat> Still hoping for one sunny day <laughs> oh, no. out of those 100 <laughs> remaining days. I was like, could it possibly be both sunny and over 70 degrees at some point between now and <laughs> September 12th? That's all I saw when I saw that there were 100 days until the NFL season. I was just like, wow, the countdown is on to fall because we still need summer at some point in there. Uh, so the story you were wondering about is that my ESPN colleague Adrian Wojnarowski, along with the New York Times, reported last week that Nike co-founder Phil Knight and Dodgers minority investor Alan Smolenski had made a written offer of more than $2 billion to purchase the Blazers' 
who said, we good. Uh, there, there's official statement. An offer was made by Phil Knight. The team remains not for sale. Uh, Woj did report that the Knight Smolenski group has, quote, engaged in discussions with the Paul Allen Trust overseeing the franchise. So it's a little tough to square that with the team not being for sale. Like, why would you engage with them at all if you aren't for sale? It's very fascinating. So we had we had the report last week about this timeline for the sale, which it felt like maybe somebody had jumped the gun a little bit as far as like what that timeline actually looked like. Then we get this report about this Phil Knight offer. And obviously offers don't happen. You don't just put an offer out publicly, right? There's conversations that happen on the back end about that offer. It does feel like at some point somebody went public with this, right? And maybe that's because they weren't being met with the answer that they liked in the back end. Quite possibly, yeah. And I think the the piece that that is even most interesting to me is you look at that $2 billion number and... This is absurd to say, but I think the Blazers are worth more than $2 billion. And seeing, obviously, you can't necessarily compare an NBA franchise to an NFL franchise, but seeing the number, I think it was $4.65 yes. that the Broncos were sold for. And, and again, it's not necessarily the same thing. The Broncos are one of the premier NFL franchises. But I think that the Blazers are worth at least $3 billion. I, I did. Forbes does not agree with this assessment. I mean, the... Timberwolves just went for $1.6 billion last year. So I don't know how you get $3 billion out of Portland. I, I mean, they, they confidently rejected a $2 billion offer. So the, the difference when you're talking in billions... Between, they did not accept. Let's, let's say that. I don't know if I would necessarily say they rejected it. I, I don't think this team will be sold for less than $2.5 billion. I mean, it's a little confusing to the extent that, look, this is an offer that has local ownership with Phil Knight's ties uh -huh. in, in Portland. And again, seems to fairly, fairly value the franchise and comes at a point where we may, know it. May. You, don't, you know that the trust is aware of that Broncos number, though. I'm, I'm sure they are very aware of it. Uh, you know, now, now the one thing that a lot of people have mentioned is, well, there were other groups that were in the bidding for the Broncos. Where do they turn after this? And those places may include the Portland Trail Blazers, and who they else, may include the Seattle the Seahawks. I, I mean, I don't know that I know a specific name. Was there anybody public? I, again, I, I'm not familiar enough with the reporting to know that. If they lost to a 4.65 billion dollar bid, that means that there probably was a three billion dollar bid out there. Oh, well, obviously, right. Yeah. Any bid for them was going to come in at more than four billion, without question. Well, and I think the Seahawks are probably worth about four billion, maybe more, right? Like a team in Denver, and and again, Denver is sort of a more premier franchise in the NFL than the Seahawks are. But a team in Denver, when you look at the local money, is probably worth less than a team in Seattle. I mean, I think it'd probably be pretty similar. I'm not sure where the Forbes Forbes NFL valuations were relatively on those two teams. Okay, what was Forbes' valuation about the Broncos before the sale? Because I don't believe that Forbes is valuing them at $4.65 I mean, you do often see teams reset the market when they're sold, you know, as relative to Forbes. So I wouldn't be shocked if that were the case. Uh, I'm I continuing mean, to scroll You here. know better than I do that the difference between a like... Denver was valued at $3.75 Okay, so basically a billion dollars more. The Seahawks were valued at $3.5 About the same. But if the Seahawks are sold, they're going to be sold for probably more. 
I, I don't know that I would necessarily say more, but I'd say in a similar ballpark. Well, and especially if, you know, Jeffrey Bezos ends up being an interested party in this because then money doesn't even really become a factor. Ballmer was at the uh, Storm game today sitting in front of it. Really? Yeah. And you think about someone who like completely reset the market when he purchased the franchise and purchased his overvaluation. Uh, it's a steal. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's not a steal, but like eventually it will look like he it. He saw where the market was going on that one. I yes. think he was he was proven proven correct on that element. I mean, there's still a basketball team in the city of Los Angeles. And at $2 billion, if that's the offer that's going to Portland, I think there's a special value to the city of Portland, though, which is they're, they're basically the only show, right? There's the Timbers or whatever, but, like, the Blazers are it in the city of Portland. And I think that there is a—you kind of control all of the state of Oregon as far as professional sports go. I, I think the Blazers are going to go for more than this. It might be to Phil Knight, but the number is going to be higher. All right, well, let's set an over-under here. I think it's $2.5 billion. I, th- I mean, I think that's probably the right place to set it. I'm still going to take the under. Definitely over. Okay. Well, this will be an interesting one to track on the podcast. But there's probably... You haven't heard anything about this behind the scenes, right? No. There's no chatter about it. I mean, there might be chatter out there. I haven't heard any of it. Do you, do you think that there would be a concern from the league about having somebody who's paying players, who, who runs Nike, who's paying players, also having a team and so paying players? I did read a story aspect. about this in the Oregonian, which some people raised that and other people dismissed it because Phil Knight <laughs> is not currently the chairman of Nike. Okay. He has no direct day-to-day involvement. Now, obviously, he's still owns a tremendous number of shares and Nike has all sorts of connections there. Uh, I mean, also, Michael Jordan has owned the Charlotte Hornets for a long period of time. Now, does is he involved in basketball shoes at all? <laughs> yes, believe it or not. And weirdly, a large number of Charlotte Hornets <laughs> players have Jordan deals. <laughs> like, what, a, what an amazing coincidence that that's the case. Uh, <laughs> the amazing coincidence is how bad the Hornets are. No, that, that's <laughs> the thing. It's like, look, if it's all of a sudden they're signing, like if Kevin Durant is signing with the Blazers, like all of a sudden people feel may feel differently. But I think, I don't think it would cause them to reject a, night, a bid led by Knight out of hand, especially also, you know, quite frankly, Full Knight is 84 years old, like that. That element is a big part of it. So I think there would be probably more concern with what's the transition plan down the road. Is Alan Smolinski capable of taking becoming the majority owner at some point down the road? So are there heirs for Phil Knight? Does he have children? He does have one one living child, yes. Uh, that actually makes things very simple. <laughs> it does, yes. <laughs> as compared to the Bullen Trust. Or to the buses or whatever. Yes. I think that might be a story on Oh, I think they already set it up on the final episode yeah. of this season of Winning Time. Uh, so the other thing that came up regarding uh, NBA franchises, Adam Silver said at Thursday's NBA Finals press conference about expansion speculation, quote, that talk is not true. At least maybe there are people talking who are not at the league office about us potentially expanding after the 2024 season. We are not <laughs> discussing that at this time. Why? What is the value to Adam Silver to deny this? There's no value for him confirming it. I think it's important to note the question that he was asked. According to the league's transcript, the reporter asked Silver, quote, there's some talk I hear that the NBA may be expanding to Seattle and Las Vegas after the 2024 season. 
which is a very poor way to put it because of the fact you allow him to say, well, that's not true. Well, you haven't decided to expand after 2024, which I don't think they have. Uh-huh. But do I think that owners, at least individually, are planning on that being a potential scenario if you know a team doesn't need to move before the now and then? I, I think like Bill Simmons talked very confidently about it on a recent podcast. He's talked confidently. He's talked overly confidently before. Though. That's fair. I, I still think there's a greater level of confidence this time than there was before and that the Vegas piece of this is a big factor. Along with Seattle actually having a arena. As discussed previously, I'm getting very old. <laughs> so we kind of need to hurry the fuck up here. All right, I'll pass that along to Adam Silver. Right? I keep getting older and basketball players stay the same age. So I think we need to hurry it up because I might die at some point. Not super. She's getting older. <laughs> I'm eating a lot of barbecue. <laughs> oh, no. We're taking years <laughs> off our life with this search. <laughs> so maybe could Adam Silver be a little bit respectful and hurry up this this uh, expansion process? I mean, I don't think they're going to hurry up an expansion process, but I think the fact... Because is... of me? No. No, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think the fact that they're not currently discussing it does not mean that it's not going to happen in the in the near future. 2024 to announce that it's a long time from now, though. Can I just get some chatter before then? Like, the second it's announced, it's going to be exciting, right? Oh, It'll yeah. just be like the doomsday clock has been set, you know? <laughs> I think it's the opposite, actually. <laughs> the doomsday clock, you don't want that to be set. I'm actually a little <laughs> nervous about this. We haven't talked about this. I'm a little nervous if basketball comes back that I just won't won't feel right. I I do not share that nervousness. Well, you're wrong about most things, so I'm not surprised. I mean, uh, if I can attend NBA games without traveling two it'll, and a half oh, hours to get there. for you. You'll be fucking able to go in whenever you want, right? Yeah. But there's people like me. We're going to have to pay a lot of money for those tickets. I'll maybe move to L.A. by then. I probably will be. That's the thing is I'll probably have moved to L.A. and then there'll be a team. And I'll be like, well, all right, I already have Clippers season tickets. Like, I guess I casually oh, yeah, those, care those about are the Sonics. probably going to be cheap. <sighs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even need Clippers season tickets. That's the thing. If the Sonics are here, I feel like I need season tickets. But if it's if I'm a Clippers fan, I could just be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Clippers fan. And go like five times a year. When you get free tickets? Or whatever. I can just like casually go and be like you know what i'll just go to the clippers game today you know what i mean like being a hardcore fan of something is the worst (laughs) on that (laughs) thanks for listening thanks